Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. Annette, I want to start off by introducing you to our Positive Coaching Alliance audience. Annette currently serves as a Senior Manager for Coaching Excellence and Sports Education for Special Olympics North America. Annette has also served in roles for Special Olympics at the international level, where she managed the training of coaches worldwide, and at the state level in Maryland, where she was the Vice President of Sports Development and Education. In addition to her work with Special Olympics, Annette served as Director of Education and Membership Services with the National Association of Collegiate Women Athletics Administrators from 2004 to 2008. Annette grew up in Illinois and received her Bachelor's of Science degree from Illinois State University. She majored in physical education, minored in psychology, and competed in basketball, field hockey, golf, track and field, and volleyball. After graduation, she played on the USA women's basketball team. She went on to earn her master's in education from Lehigh University. Finally, Annette has extensive experience coaching at nearly every level, from junior high, high school, college, and of course, within Special Olympics. Some of her most important work today is around coaching coaches. Annette, thank you so much for joining the Positive Coaching Alliance audience and me today. Well, thank you. I'm definitely happy to to be involved with this podcast. Wonderful. You know, Annette, I was hoping we could start by, um, you know, hitting the Wayback Machine and having you tell our audience a little bit about your experience playing sports growing up in Illinois and um, what that was like back then. Well, it's definitely different than what women and girls have today. Um, I grew up at a time um, when I was at the high school level. I was in the the late 50s and 60s. And so there was no high school um, sports for girls at that time. We had intramurals, but I really, the only formative training that I was able to get at that time was they had a junior Olympic track program, so I ran and I jumped And I also had a father who was an excellent amateur golfer. So at age 10, as soon as I could get on the course, I was able to learn how to play golf that um, I'm thoroughly happy with because I can certainly do that today. Um, At the college level, I was, as you saw, that I played several sports. Our seasons didn't overlap We generally had 10 sports days, for example, in basketball, where we would play two games in one day, and Mm -hmm. we would officiate a third. We were the volunteer crew, both on the competition side as well as the management side. And certainly those days, I am very happy that I had those kinds of experiences because that has helped me today. So I was the first of the Title IX coaches being able to go from a situation where we were probably better trained than some of the coaches nowadays because of our physical education, kinesiology, body mechanics and corrective procedures, the study of movement. Uh, We were really in the best place to be in the formative stages of girls' and women's sports because of that background. 
Uh, Annette, it's it's pretty incredible the change you've seen in the opportunities for girls and women um, in this country for sports, and it's exciting to sort of see what we have today that um, you know that we didn't have back in the 50s. I'm curious when you reflect back um, across, you know, as a player and a coach and, and having assistant coaches, are there some coaches that stand out in your memory that you thought were particularly effective, either ones that coached you or that you had the opportunity to coach with? And what was it about them that you feel like really made them stand out as coaches in your memory? Well, the first coach I really had was my dad teaching me how to mm. play golf. And mm-hmm. he took my swing and um, – and my movement pattern, because, you know, I was young, um, I was able to have really a good swing, and he emphasized rhythm, uh, which made all the difference in the world. Uh, when I got the collegiate level, uh, Kay McDonald was my first basketball coach. And what I learned from Kay was how to work together as a team, but yet challenge every single player. She believed in stations. We charted everything. Talk about statistics. Um, <laughs> from the types of things that we did, and of course we saw that chart every day, and really looking at personal best. Uh, and mm. then at the post-college, when I played on the United States team, Alberta Cox was my coach at that stage, we didn't really have as much of a structured offense as I would have liked, but what she taught was really being a student of the game and where openings would exist and looking at triangles and open spaces. And so at every single level, um, not only did I have the technical side and the tactical side, but I had coaches who you could tell were very interested in you holistically. And I think that that was unusual or because they were women and because they, except obviously for my father, believed in a collegial approach, mm-hmm. we were able to achieve a great deal just because of where they were coming from. hmm Mm-hmm. I want to, Annette. I want to ask you a few more questions about Kay McDonald and the the charting that she would do of these statistics. And you said um, a lot of them were focused on personal bests. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious if there's a lesson there for the youth coaches and the high school coaches who are on the line um, about how to keep stats that really focus on sort of how how well an individual is doing. You know, two weeks later, um, not just sort of compared to all of her peers. Um, but relative to herself and her own personal best. Can you give us a little more detail on that? Oh, sure. Um, Obviously, because basketball involves uh, moving as well as shooting, there would be different drills where you would be moving with a ball, not just running for the sake of running, which actually looks at more of a game's approach. Um, What we did all was very focused on the game. So even though it was individual, there were skills that were transferable because it was the game in mind. So uh, shooting under pressure, first the pressure was time. How many shots Mm. could you make in 30 seconds? And then there would be, uh, so in, in what I learned was that you can vary the pressure based on a progression. And so we would chart 
but we would chart at each step of the pro- of the progress so that it mm-hmm. went from shooting making x number of shots and then how many could you make in 30 seconds and mm-hmm. then you needed to make at least an amount in 30 mm-hmm. seconds so mm-hmm. along with that we did partner drills where oh, yeah. one of them was called, or what I called, a pro role, where you and your partner would uh, get the ball, it would be rebounded, toss the person in the middle of the floor, your teammate, then you would take a wing coming up the sideline, the bounce pass would go to you making a layup, you would continue to the opposite wing, the person mm-hmm. who passed you the ball got the rebound, outletted the ball, that person then dribbled to the middle. And so what there was in this timed drill, you had to make the shot, and then you were timed what it would take to go from one basket to the next, uh, and then that was your score. So the Mm -hmm. better you got, the quicker you got, the more you made that shot, the better the time that you had. And then because basketball is a game of conditioning, you would do, that's just one lap. You would do two laps. Then -hmm. you would do three Mm -hmm. laps. And then Mm -hmm. you can do it as a team where Mm -hmm. you have two baskets, two courts side by side, so you would be competing against another team, but the goal was to have both teams do it in under a particular point in time. Yep. So that you were still working together, but you were also in a competitive situation. Yep, that in sort of simulating the pressure and the stress of a game. I like that a lot. That's mm-hmm. that's fantastic. So I'm curious, um, when did you first get interested or introduced to Special Olympics? Actually, it was, uh, I mean, I knew Special Olympics existed. When I was at Rhode Island, they had a, in fact, I came back from an event, and they were doing the state games at the University of Rhode Island. Now, in my history, nobody had ever asked if I would do a clinic for Special hmm. Olympics athletes. And hmm. I think a lot of times people make a decision based on what they think you will answer as opposed to <laughs> what you would answer. I mean, they, yep. they kind of cut themselves. And so... After I'm, when I finished at Rhode Island, um, there was a position that opened up at Special Olympics at the international level, and it was the director of basketball. Mm-hmm. Well, I had left Rhode Island at that time, and I got a call from a friend of mine saying, you know, they're trying to find you. I said, well, who's trying to find me? And it was Special Olympics, and I had been recommended for the position here I was in the Atlantic 10, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know if these names, Rini Portland would, she oh, was sure. at yeah. the time. And Carol yeah. Blazkowski, uh was one of the former, actually she was probably one of the first one women in collegiate sports that really had a high scoring uh, at the collegiate level. Well, one of them evidently was approached, and they were not interested, but uh, what they said was, you know, I wonder what Annette is doing now. I think that she would be someone that they would want to 
talk with. And yeah. uh, they found me, and uh, basically the rest is history. I wanted to see a program. I saw a program there in northeastern Illinois, um, and uh, as it came come to find out, they were one of the strongest area programs in the country. They had three full-time staff. That day I saw a pioneer AT&T meeting. I saw soccer skills. I saw soccer team competition on Sunday. I saw uh, their bowling tournament, and then I got on a plane and went to Special Olympics International. Um, wow. And it was clear that it didn't matter the people that I met, but it was Mrs. Shriver that was going to make oh, the boy. decision. And um, I certainly had three goals when I went into that meeting. One, I was going to stay in there longer than 15 minutes. Two, I was <laughs> going to make her smile. And three, I would answer her questions succinctly. And if I didn't mm-hmm. know, I would acknowledge that, but I would also give a solution in terms of where I could find the answer, mm-hmm. and um, I got the job. Those seem like great interview tips for anyone entering any interview. Mm-hmm. Those are fantastic. Um, so so I'm curious, a lot of people, you know, I think when they think about Special Olympics, the sort of physiological benefits and the health benefits of keeping kids active are really obvious. But over your many years with Special Olympics, I think you feel and we all know that the benefits of sports and the Special Olympics experience really transcend just the health benefits or the physiological benefits. Um, And I'm curious if you could talk for a little while about what you think Special Olympics is giving the kids, um, again, that sort of transcend health benefits. We've got several different programs, and uh, for, I mean, we have a young athletes program at age two. They can be involved Mm. in more of a play activities program from two to seven. And then Mm. at eight and above, it's training and competition. Now, the reason Mm -hmm. for this magic number of eight is that Mm -hmm. in the beginning, the diagnostics were not done until age eight. But what they decided was they kept that magic eight because most often our athletes, you know, no one ever came up to their door and asked them to come out and play. So that they were behind in terms of experiences. They never played or rarely played. And this just gave them more time to help develop physically as well as emotionally and socially. Um, Yeah. And and really, the benefits, uh, Mrs. Shriver was, was smart. She saw the benefits of sport to her own family. And yeah. in looking at the population, uh, at the time, it was the only population or one of the very few that had any advocacy. And certainly mm. the the goal of being able to help this population, knowing what it was that they needed, putting together resources, um, because really there are more similarities than differences in working with athletes. And it Hmm. would take me a whole lot less time to be able to teach you how to work with the population than it would to learn how to do a sport. But we've Hmm. got both covered with our resources. So yep. in that vein, um, we are 
looking at sport to not only help the athlete and looking at the athlete holistically, we also help the athlete transition to the community. There are rules Hmm. in sport. There are rules in life. Mm -hmm. Um, Many times an athlete won't have the social uh, connections that you have, but they do in Special Olympics because there are those opportunities to be social. And then really our last, our our program that has just really boomed is Unified Sports, where individuals with and without intellectual disability are playing on the same team, and they can start as early in, in the schools. You don't have to wait until after you're out of school because we have programs at all levels. Annette, tell us more about unified sports and if um, you know if people are current middle school students or high school students and they might want to get involved with unified sports, how can they find out if that's going on in their community or even you know be a, a catalyst to start that in their own school or their own community? Sure, really, most of the state offices are in the capitals uh, of the states here in the United States. Um, they could also find out if there's something going on in their community, uh, you know, via um, the web. Because mm-hmm. when you go onto the website, if with the, if it's Special Olympics Texas or if it's Special Olympics Northern California, um, there's a program locator, and then you can either go to that state office, or many times it will list the various communities where the staff members are, and then certainly we are Uh, Mm volunteer-driven. At the area level, many of the individuals who are really conducting the program are volunteers, but there would be a connection, whether it be a phone number and or email address, where you could get involved that way. But via the, the web and the Special Olympics state, you will find out who your local contact is. Wonderful. And can you talk a little bit more, um, what is the opportunity for kids who want to get involved with unified sports? So you've got the kids who may have a a learning disability, um, and then you have the folks who may be sort of quote-unquote more mainstream who are paired up. Um, Do you call them a partner? And and how does that work? What do they do if they get to be part of unified sports? Sure. Um, The the athletes we uh, who are not uh, who do not have an intellectual disability uh, we've called partners and so in each one of the sports there's opportunities for athletes and partners and depending upon the roster or the sport for example basketball you know you have 5 on the court at any given point in time well, there will be three athletes and two partners so that the the edge goes to the athlete. If it's volleyball, it's three and three, three athletes and three partners. And what we're looking at is meaningful involvement. Uh, we've got different models with unified sports. A lot of times when people start, it may be more the recreation model, which looks like here we have a class in the school program where we can't quite get the the equal numbers, but it may go, there may be a few athletes in the class 
And we look at this as a recreational or a training model because they're learning the sport, but it's really not a and, – and they play during class, but it really isn't a competitive situation. Intramurals, mm-hmm. you will have a closer um, – match with regard to what's needed in terms of three athletes and two partners, let's say, for example, in basketball, but they don't mm-hmm. train. They just play. Okay. But the, but the competitive model, we want to have athletes and partners of similar skills. Now, they don't have to be equal, but each one of the team members needs to be able to contribute to the team. When there is an unequal, and sometimes it's it, tends to be more partners than athletes, but not always. We found that there are some athletes that are outstanding, and it's the partners or a few of the partners that may not be as skilled. But Uh when there's an unequal (laughs) skill level, the higher the skill-leveled individual serves more as a mentor as Mm -hmm. opposed to a teammate. And it's up to the mentor to keep the ball in play, to be able to help those athletes learn the game. So it's about the athlete, not the partners. And really to form a team, you look at the athletes that you have and then try to find the partners who match the athlete's abilities. And Mm -hmm. it may not be the highest functioning individuals. Uh, It may be recreational players. It may be uh, people on student council. It may be the chess team. It may be individuals who may not have the highest ability, but they want to play. And now there's an opportunity to play. And the benefits to the partners are just as significant, sometimes more, than the benefits really to the athletes. I'm reminded of a story... In Indiana, when I first started, um, they had a wonderful situation. I mean, they played their state tournament just like the high school in that it was a play down to the state. And here they were playing in Market Square Arena, their championship game, just like the rest of the high school divisions. And this player scored the first basket that, he has ever scored in his life. Well, people <laughs> picked them up and carried them around the gym, and, of course, the referees are looking like, well, maybe this is just the way they do things. <laughs> they finish, <laughs> and uh, then they finish the game. Now, what I didn't tell you was this player who scored the basket happened to be a partner. Fantastic. And his self-esteem yep. was affected just like anybody else. And that's what the power of unified sports does. Yep. Yep, that's a great story. Um, and that one of the things you and I have talked about before is how sometimes people who have experience coaching a sport, they may say, like, well, I don't really feel like I'm qualified to coach in Special Olympics. I don't know how to work with kids with intellectual disabilities. And they just have a fear that they don't have what it takes to work with this population and to coach in Special Olympics. And I'm curious what you would say to that person and um, how different is it, you know, coaching in Special Olympics versus um, other coaching they may have done? Really, there's more similarities than differences among players. Mm -hmm. Our players learn a little differently. They need a lot of repetition and reinforcement. 
there's a challenge with processing words, and so we don't want to use as many words as possible. We want to demonstrate because our athletes learn more from imitation. A lot of people in sport learn that way. If they can see it, they have a better shot at doing it. So looking at the nuances of uh, communication, I tell you, if you know the sport, it would take me a little over an hour to teach you how to work with our athletes and then actually work with athletes under the supervision. Really, yep. you're, you're dealing with behavior. We, we have some wonderful resources on our website that are accessible to anyone. And mm-hmm. the, quick, the um, Athlete-Centered Coaching Guide, if you go to resources.specialolympics.org and look under Sports and Games, and there will be coaching resources. This Athlete-Centered Coaching Guide and the Quick Reference Coaching Guide The focus really needs to be on behavior. We are Mm -hmm. tired of labels. Uh, It does not matter what the label is. It serves no purpose. There is well over 256 causes of intellectual disability. And really when you think about it, under duress, under pressure, all of us evidence a little bit of intellectual disability. And so... (laughs) If we look at our behavior of short attention span, attention deficit, failure to form social bonds, and then even look at different impairments, whether it's learning, um, uh, vision impaired, mm-hmm. um, there are strategies, the top five strategies on what it is that you can do to be able mm-hmm. to help improve that athlete's learning. It does not matter what your skill you're trying to teach or what you're trying to do within your teaching or coaching framework. If you don't deal with the behavior, you're not going to be able to to work with the skill. And so Mm -hmm. what we wanted to provide was we want more sport people to help us because it takes too long to learn the sport, but yet we provide training in both sport as well as coaching Special Olympics athletes. But it's this phase and the the communication and what we do with what the individual has, we now have answers. We have solutions. And even Mm -hmm. during a practice, you can whip out this little quick reference guide, work with your assistant coaches and say, you know, Jerry is having a tough time Really, he's, he's, he's lost his focus. Well, it mm-hmm. says here that let's take him to a basket or let's take him to an area of the gym that's more in the corner. Let's work mm-hmm. with him one-on-one. So now his focus, and that's the first strategy. So if that doesn't work, we now go to the second strategy. So it gives coaches an idea of what to do in the moment and uh, be able to be successful with it. So the coach feels good, and certainly the player feels better because now they're getting what it is that they need in order to be a a better ability athlete. Yep. Annette, I know you guys have um, really put a lot of effort um, into your online training, and I'm wondering if you could spend just a few minutes talking about what's available um, for coaches um, as far as some online training. 
exactly. Uh, well, initially we did a lot of face-to-face training, but sooner or later, you know, the supply can't keep up with the demand. I still train trainers so that we can offer. We don't want to replace face-to-face training, but by the same token, when somebody enters, you want them to get the best message first on what it is that they need to do. The very mm-hmm. first co- course that we put online was back in 2010, and that was the Principles of Coaching course. Really, once they have achieved certification, every th- three years they need to maintain or become, many of them say, recertified or upgrade mm-hmm. their certification. And after yep. six years, we wanted a higher-level program, but we couldn't offer it or 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 mandate it unless, you know, we provided an avenue to get it. And West Virginia University stepped up, and we now have this online course via West Virginia University's Extended Learning Department, and it's a deal for $35. What we're in the process of doing right now is updating that course. Now that we have other courses available we can pare that down to a three- to four-hour course as opposed to right now it's when you look at all the video and all, it takes, oh, 18 to 20 hours. Um, wow. The next wow. course is that we developed was coaching Special Olympics athletes, which we needed to be, be able to provide uh, because that's really the core of what we do. And Mm -hmm. that is through the American Sport Education Program. The course, Mm -hmm. and that's $16.95. The course, however, that's met with the most success, that Coaching Special Olympics Athletes course is three hours. Coaching Unified Sports that we've been able to actually develop with the National Federation of High School is a 90-minute course. And we have to date over 6,278 people, because I just called it up uh, this morning, <laughs> that have yep. taken that course. And wow. um, those high schools that and middle schools that are actually offering unified sports, those coaches yep. have to take it as a part of the mm-hmm. requirements for coaching. And, uh, I mean, it's Great. met with success. Um, we've had fewer challenges than we had in the past uh, because people were, you know, nobody's going to disagree with the idea. However, how can you ensure meaningful involvement? You know, just like mm-hmm. anything, you know, when the medals get on the line, all of a sudden the higher ability athletes take over at the expense mm-hmm. of the lower ability athletes. Right, and right. So with that said, um, knowing what meaningful involvement means, uh, we have a means now of enforcing meaningful involvement, um, but it's taken some time. I mean, unified sports started in the 80s. And so this is 2015. It's um, maybe maybe we're the ones that are slow learners, but uh, <laughs> we're doing a much better job of being able to offer really unified sports uh, the way it could be or should be, yep. so that more people can benefit from it. 
Annette, we're um, we're coming to the end of our time, and I think we, you and I might just have to do another one of these in the near future. But I I don't want to let the interview end without talking to you a little bit about parents. And I think in particular, I'd love to ask you just how do you feel like parents, um, and maybe in particular of, of kids with intellectual disabilities and kids who are, are participating in Special Olympics, how do you feel like those parents can best support their kids um, in that athletic environment? Well, first of all, we need to be mindful of what parents go through. You know, this is 24-7, 365, and as the yep. the child uh, matures, gets older, uh, you know, the, some of the problems can increase. And, of course, mm-hmm. the parents are mindful of, what is my son or daughter going to do when I'm gone? And mm. while they're even going through being able to participate, Practice might be the only time that they have a respite uh, Mm. from what it is they do on a daily basis. And so if Mm -hmm. parents need that time, we encourage them to take that time because that may be the only time that they're able to get that respite. Um, Mm. In terms of the program, being able to sign them up, being able to find them a place where they can participate, just like the the person being able to go on the website and find out where your local program is. We don't want to turn anyone away. A lot of times it's difficult for us to find those individuals nowadays with the right to privacy. And unless you've Mm -hmm. got somebody within a school system, you really don't know who... Mm -hmm. um, qualifies but you know with unified right. sports you don't have to turn anybody away we just yep. don't want the the program to be solely based on individuals with disability but with right. the parents um it also gives parents an opportunity to meet other parents and to find out maybe some of the services that they hmm. really qualify for but yet they don't know. I mean, some of these things are like well-kept secrets. I don't know that right. they want parents to know, but mm. but they do qualify for for benefits, uh, mm-hmm. and that we want to make sure, <clears throat> excuse me, that they get, uh, yeah. so that it's just as much for the parents as it is for their son or daughter in terms of participating. Uh, and then yeah. for the first time, I'll never forget a parent in the stands and um the the child was running and the child did exceedingly well stayed between the lines they were running you know like uh, 50 meters stayed between the lines was able to of course they were looking at the people were cheering so they were looking at the stands but this athlete was so focused. The coach helped that athlete get so focused. They were able to stay between the lines. They ran the race. They won. Oh, boy. And the parents started crying. Uh, mm-hmm. This was the first time they saw their daughter in terms of her successes, not their failures. And so wow. this is something with regard to programming that, that we can provide because it's a sport opportunity. The coach has been trained. The coach is looking at the best opportunities 
he or she can provide to that athlete so that they can reach more closely to their capabilities, and we do it over time. In the schools, they're four years. Four years, now they go to um, junior high, and then they go to high school, and then they're out. We're in it for the long term. They can start as early as two, and they can go until they die. We do not limit them in terms of age nor ability because we have sports and events for all ability levels and we're looking at inclusion of being able to help those athletes be a part of society so they are seen as responsible citizens. They're seen as providers, not just receivers. Yeah. Well, Annette, that's a wonderful note to conclude on. Um, I just I want to thank you so much for your career um, of service to Special Olympics and to youth athletes. And I just think when I think about the impact of Special Olympics, my head spins. And I think it's because of people like you and the role you've played um, that so many more kids are getting to participate and to be viewed in terms of their successes, um, not in terms of their deficits. And it's um, really moving to hear that from you and just to share your expertise and to connect people um, with resources and training and opportunities. Um, So thank you so much for for not just taking this time with me today, um, but also for recently joining the PCA National Advisory Board. And we're going to be leaning on you into the future um, and your expertise to make sure everybody knows what's out there. And uh, thanks again for for doing this interview, um, but more importantly, just for your career of really impactful work. Well, my pleasure. It's definitely been a a labor of love, and it's a niche that I never envisioned in the beginning, but I'm thoroughly happy in terms of what I've been able to do and who I've been able to do it with. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.